the Jewish Divorce Project. Because marriage doesn't always work out and chicken soup doesn't always help. How are you? I'm still waking up. Oh, yeah. But I'm okay. It's gloomy weather here. It was supposed to be nicer. Well, I live in sunny Florida. It's always nice. It's actually not brutally hot yet, which is great. So we've got another day or two of that before. Just warming up. Such insane temperatures. Okay. What are we going to talk about today? I don't know. That's a good question. What should we talk about? Well, we can talk about what's topical, like Will Smith's slap, how to deal. I already talked about that <laughs> on a different podcast. I, yeah, I talked about that on a different podcast. Yeah, you're, you're Will Smith. I don't know how we spin that either. Oh, I mean, we don't have to talk about it, but it's how to respond to things that upset you. It's very relevant to divorce. Okay, we can do it, go from, from that perspective. I actually like that. That's a good idea. You know, I'm sorry, I'm scratching my head. Like, no, that's okay. Right yeah, face. we don't have to go too much into it, but we can use it as a launch pad. Of that happens all the time in divorce that your ex says or does something you, you that gets triggered off. by something easily yeah. triggered. And how do you, what's an appropriate response? What's the boundary? When do you stand up for yourself and fight? Maybe even if it's not physical violence, because that's a clear no. But yeah. How much do that's you... a hard no for you? That's a hard pass. <laughs> but when do you stand up, put up a fight, and when do you kind of just say, "Yeah, let's just let this go." Let me let this one pass. I'll take this pitch. Yeah, that's a a good question. I don't. Uh, I think I've only recently come to learn how to do that well. Which part? I, well, I mean. The part of, I mean, certainly nonviolence has always been part of my life, right? No matter how many pillows I throw or scream at, right? Um, uh, In the nonviolent approach. Right, yeah. <laughs> um, but just the idea of not being triggered so easily, right? And realizing that a lot of what people go through has to do more of what their own internal monologue is than I think anything that's going on externally and objectively speaking there are times where something external to you can impact you so right um to really dysregulate you but in my experience what i've come to learn and this is being a rabbi dealing with people who have their own opinions about things as well as in marriage too and now in divorce too is also knowing that i think people tell themselves their own things they have their own internal narratives going on their own stories based on things that have happened in their own lives traumas events experiences relationships circumstances whatever and that's feeding a message and then you know other people come into play and they resemble parts of that message that may have nothing to do with them personally but trigger that individual and then you're involved in you know a shitstorm Agreed. If if I have any word that I repeat in my personal and professional life over and over again, it's the word perspective. Just right. recognizing that where people are coming when you meet each other, 
it's usually a very different place. That isn't to say it's easy to stop your reaction. You know, someone else might have their own story, their own background, their own baggage. And yet, especially the ones that we've had intimate relationships with, they know how to push those triggers. They know the things to say that, that we react to that are painful, hurtful, that are reactive. And I think in divorce, especially, it's a very um, gray area where to draw the line, where to say, that's not okay. That's a boundary. I'm going to stand up for myself. I'm right. going to assert my rights and needs. Right. Or where to say, okay, I see perspective. I see another side. I'm going to let this go. I'm not going to fight here. I may be even going to take the high road. <laughs> that's always a nice way to phrase it. I'm going to take the high road. And that's not always an easy area to navigate and to discern which, which path to take. No, it's not. And I would also argue, and let's do this earlier on in our conversation, we have a tendency to do it later, and I should take main responsibility for that. But, um, you know, Passover reminds us about enslavement, and it's just around the corner. And it could be easy to be really enslaved and trigger happy, or that is to say reactionary to whatever those triggers are by not knowing them, by not seeing how they show up in our body, right? the body keeps the scores, the book says, right? Because trauma really does impact us on a number of different levels and our body remembers it. Uh, and so what does that look like though, if you're constantly responding from such a traumatized perspective or at the very least a triggered perspective without really knowing how you're also impacting the situation and what you could do about it, right? How can you liberate yourself from those experiences that are kind of spiraling you out of control? funny I, I had that same thought of that connection with Passover I thought of it more as freedom but you just said liberate of how to free yourself from that because yeah. I personally believe once you get this awareness once you have this understanding of perspective and noticing your own reactions your triggers like you said your body responses there's so much freedom in that I I teach mm. um, I do groups with teens and that's that's the the um, approach that I use when I talk to them of, you know, you're stuck in this shitty environment. You're stuck with your parents now. It's you have no freedom. It's the time in your life where you feel so frustrated that you're stuck. Yeah. You're starting to individuate. You have your own desires, opinions, wants, needs, and your parents have their own rules. And there's a lot of freedom in learning how to control your behavior in and control your thoughts, control your feelings. It's incredibly empowering and it goes beyond teenage years to notice our own internal responses. And you said that spiral. Yeah. I like that circle that we get stuck in that, um, that spins out of control to slow that down and to notice what's going on. And so it becomes easier to figure out where do I stand up for myself? Where do I need to assert myself? And where am I reacting here that I can take a step back and a deep breath and slow it down so that I'm not, you know, being reactive versus responsive. Yeah. And what is my internal direction in this way, right? That's a big thing that we don't often talk about and articulate a lot is the idea of internal direction as opposed to external direction, which would be whatever's occurring outside of us causing us to make whatever decisions we're making as opposed to what decisions do we want to make based on our own internal wisdom 
and our own sense of wherever we should go in life. And it's so we're funny. talking very, oh, sorry, go ahead. What? No, what do you want to say? I say we're, we're talking very theoretically, which is great. I love this type of theory, but. Forget that. Mine's real. This is a theory lady. <laughs> well, I was going to ask you, how have you done this personally? How, you oh. know, it's one thing to understand the concepts and then it's another thing to integrate it in reality well, and in practical day to day. This is great because this is my next thought. You know, you said about <laughs> slowing down and that's what's been really important. Like part of it, it started out with this idea of like being like a bullfighter in some way and like recognizing that people come at you because they see red in whatever way it is. And I have to like misdirect them, right? I have to move out of the way so it doesn't impact me. But then you're also talking about like the idea of slowing down and that resonates with me when we talk about Passover and the idea of chametz right? Because we're not always in those moments that initially traumatize us, right? Or impact us so, so much so that like triggering happens, right? It's recognizing that there is chametz, right? That there is leftover residue of some of these things, right? Just kind of, it, it hasn't been cleaned out entirely. And so seeing those little crumbs around and recognizing where they are in someone else's actions and how that does it to me and where it comes up has been actually really useful it's getting rid of them, right, over time in a biur chametz sort of way, in a burning of the chametz sort of way that I have yet to master. And maybe that's just what I need to do is I need to look at them and see them as being as dust of the earth. Even if I haven't found them over the course of the last year, they're dust of the earth. They don't exist. And so practically, what have you done that makes that process helpful? I think trying to stay aware of what those triggers are, right? And what those pieces of chametz look like and trying to avoid them if I know they're going to be around until I feel comfortable with them. Part of it is just time, I think, too. That's the best I got. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, I would say that maybe just kind of confronting it entirely is a good way to deal with it because then you just take it all of its power away, right? Yeah. I don't know how strong I am in that regard, though. What have you done, hotshot therapist? <laughs> hotshot? I'm not saying I've done anything more than With that. turquoise glasses frames. I'm clearly relevant. Um, to me, it's been an interesting process. I started with meditation. I think meditation was incredibly helpful in being able to recognize that meta thinking, you know, thinking about your thinking so that I could slow down and notice what I'm thinking. Um, I am very analytical. I love analyzing, making sense. It's part, it's part of the therapeutic work that I love. Okay, let's figure out this puzzle. Let's figure very out Jewish. what's wrong and let's deep dive in and we're going to figure out all the pieces. Some and people that would call that me... neurotic, but okay. <laughs> Well, it's not neurotic. I'm not worried or concerned. I'm analyzing. I'm breaking it down okay. so that I can understand more. But it that takes or it took me up until a certain place. There's only, I think, a certain level you can reach with the cognitive awareness. And of late or of later, I've really shifted towards what you mentioned before, your body. So pairing that mindfulness with noticing your body reactions because our emotions don't live 
in the cognitive realm. They live in our senses, our sense, the sensory input. They live in our body. And, and they live in my heart. All my feelings live in my heart. Your feelings, do they live in your heart? <laughs> Often, if you were to say, where do you feel the feeling? Usually it's in our gut or our shoulders or our chest. Feel it in my usually bones. Where, it's usually where it comes up. So then noticing my my body reactions. So noticing when I'm getting into those spaces and then pairing that with the ability to slow down, take a step back. And and it isn't always easy. And sometimes it's um postmortem, you know, after you've reacted of going back and saying, what happened there? What triggered me? What were my thoughts? What were my feelings? What, you know. What was I worried about? What was I scared about? What did it remind me of? So asking yourself those questions. To me, that's been very helpful. Is this a new conversation that people are having about being triggered and all that stuff? I mean, I feel like it's found its way into popular culture much more. And maybe I'm just coming to it. It's decades upon decades I, I upon decades old. But like, you know. A I, lot I just... of psychological um, vernacular. <laughs> and to me, it bothers me like the words are misused like well maybe we'll do another episode on narcissism i hate the way that narcissism is thrown about it's that'll be a really popular one, episode. wrongly used and i mean the way that people talk about it you would think that 90 percent of the population have a clinical diagnosis of narcissism and everyone but who also the be words, wondering am i a narcissist is my ex a narcissist oh my god oh, why am i listening to this is a narcissist that's for sure yeah. um <laughs> So trigger is one of those words that gets thrown around a lot. I'm triggered. You trigger me. That was so triggering. Um, I think more than it needs to be, but it is creating that awareness that something, I think a lot of people put too much stock on the person or the people or the event that triggered rather than what happened. (laughs) What was the triggering response? So we, we, as a, as a society have put a lot of, emphasis and responsibility on the external factor rather than oh right if you were triggered what right. was going on inside of you what was the trigger reaction well but that was my whole thing about the will smith thing right and, and i think and part of what i've learned in in my work in the men's group and and just with therapy and everything is that for the most part you have to assume that everyone shows up as a good person right in every scenario everyone tries to show up as a good law-abiding moral individual right? And they won't deliberately try to hurt you, right? In some cases, right, objectively speaking, there will be assholes who do that, right? Because that is what happens in life, right? Evil does exist in the world in different forms, uh, but that you have to trust that people are going to show up. And even at a place like the Oscars, there is a huge, like, uh, opportunity for, you know, things to, for people to show up as good people, even if it's masked in different ways, Right. And, th- and my whole point is to say is that like Will Smith is respond like what the fuck is going on inside him. Right. For him to respond in that way. Right. Because all it really does amount to is a joke. Right. That's all it was. And so like what is going on inside him for him to be like that ain't a joke. That is not something we joke about. So much so that he lost control. Yeah. I, I, I've actually, I wouldn't say argued, but deeply debated this concept of whether or not evil exists in the world. I have a hard time with 
with believing that that evil exists in the world because then what does that mean? Some people are born evil. How, how does that happen? No, it and, means that, is that the luck of the draw. It means that people make choices. It's a great I story in the Talmud, so. just a great brief story in the Talmud about how someone steals some seeds, right? Some wheat seeds, and they plant them in the field, right? You would think that because they're stolen seeds that they wouldn't grow, right? If there's justice in the world, that's just what it is, right? They're not going to grow. But the fact is the world turns according to its natural course, and those seeds are going to grow and yield wheat, and that person will be able to benefit from whatever that is. But that's my point is that like people make choices, right? And there isn't some larger force that really controls anything like that, right? We can bring evil to, into this world by the choices that we make. That's why we have the Holocaust. And the number of people made choices, right? To bring that into reality and to create that evil in the world. And people make I choices to... I what? think you're skipping a step. I, I don't think we just um, go from infant, infancy to adults who make choices. I think that I like to call it our wiring, the way we are wired and the adaptive survival strategies that we integrate lead into the choices that we make. Often it feels like there is no other choice. So when you don't have a strong sense of self and you feel weak, insecure, inadequate, maybe your adaptive strategy is to belittle others or be mean or to assert yourself or dominate. I'm not saying that's okay. I'm not saying that's the right choice, but I don't think it's actually so much of a choice often. I think it's actually the way we're wired as a self-protective measure leads us to make choices that hurt other people. And I think often it doesn't really come from evil. It comes from brokenness. It comes from miswiring. Well, but there's a way of showing up and being protective without inflicting pain on other people as well not if you're not wired that way you're talking about someone who's healthy and who can assess okay i want to feel good and i want to feel good without hurting other people but a lot of people aren't wired that way okay but wired or not these are still decisions people are making i don't know how you're trying to justify this as a way of saying people are naturally inclined to be evil okay fine Great. Have you ever done or said anything that's hurt somebody? Yes. Have I meant to do it? No. Have I enjoyed it? Absolutely not. Have I felt incredible but I'm saying remorse? In that moment, like I did something come over you where you lost some element of control, where there was another emotional force that was stronger that you hurt someone or by doing or saying something. Oh yeah, absolutely. And I can think about it's, it in divorce as well, if we want to be honest about it. I mean, there was for a, sure. Yeah. And it's that wiring that we have. It's that oh something is feels unsafe, something feels uncomfortable about this vulnerability. So rather than go a healthier way, and I am guilty of this a thousand percent as well, which we all are, we resort to our adaptive strategies, which often are not. But that, that doesn't healthy. but that doesn't also make it right or productive. I'm, I'm, I agree with you. I'm not saying it makes it right. I do think that at a certain point in adulthood, we all should learn what our wiring is. Those are our triggers. Why are you triggered? And what are our re- reactions that we're wired with? We should, that is healthy adulthood is to learn that. But I don't think it is all a very clear choice for most people. I think that most people are wired with reactivity and it doesn't even seem like a choice. 
I don't think people wake up in the morning and say, today I'm going to be an asshole. What if wired <laughs> for reactivity is just a way to put it? I think I might say um, have a propensity to be reactionary. Okay, which is to say that like you could be going about your business, doing your stuff. I'm guilty of this all the time, right? I'm like focused and there's only so much stuff I have bandwidth to be focused on, right? And something comes in and in a surprising way, right? That like jolts me out of that. That can be really unnerving. And then I go into protective mode because I feel destabilized. No question about it, especially when I had everything kind of nice and orderly in my head to begin with. So I could go about and live my life the way that I perceive it to be the way that I've envisioned it. Um, but again, right, even if that's the case, one has to be mature enough and emotionally intelligent enough to know that like, okay, I feel threatened at this moment, but what's happening is just that there's been a little change in the schedule, right? And not, right, that someone has stolen something from me or taken something from me that's been so incredibly valuable that I must now defend it with every fiber of my strength and being. Which is you are talking about an ideal, but how? No, I'm not actually. Get I'm there? talking about being mature. How should somebody get there without awareness, without the concept? Well, of there's this plenty of ways of getting on. there. One could go through therapy. One could talk with individuals. Because you in their know lives. that you're on the other end of that. You know that there are skills, techniques, well, what else are we tools, talking about here? measures. We're going to come at this completely blind. Well, yes, most people are. Most people, you have to look at where most people are at, See, that they don't, yeah. Because this is where I get confused about the Will Smith thing, because I keep thinking like, okay, if there was something going on in him that he didn't realize what was going on and he lashed out because of all this, you know, triggering that was going on, he was unaware of the whole situation. Why is he so unaware? Like, how did he get to that stage? Because because. I would have thought, right? So this, maybe I'm conceding a little bit to you right now. I would have thought that someone as so accomplished as him, right? Who had just put a, a, his entire life down on paper for people to consume, right? And also put it out there in any number of other digital formats on social media, right? How is he not aware of that and capable of controlling it? Because anybody could have, or anybody, and people have argued, there would have been any number of other appropriate responses for him to take short of walking up on stage, slapping Chris Rock and then cussing him out from his seats as well, right? Because we're not machines. And when we are, the, the, the more weak we are and the more vulnerable we are, the less willpower we have. We have, and again, I am not excusing his behavior. I do not think he did the right thing, but we have no idea what happened in his, in his life. Are. The 10 hours preceding that, what if he got a call that was really bad news? What if he got in a fight with one of his kids or his wife so that his defenses are low? Now he's in a more vulnerable state. What if he didn't sleep the night before because he was thinking about the Oscars and, and really excited or worried about what might happen? We don't know. All I'm saying is that somebody can be very self-aware and somebody can work on themselves. And when their defenses are down, when our willpower is weak or depleted, we resort back to our wiring. We have look at we have those core wounds that don't really ever leave us. We just get better at managing it. I will concede to you there was a, a time where Tamara and I had a big fight in divorce. My ex and I had a big fight in divorce. And uh I, I lost it. Like I couldn't handle it. And so I drove over there and I was just really demanding and very angry and loud. Um and it was ugly. And I just didn't, you know, it was um, it was my weekend with the boys, but her father was in town and they were having Shabbat dinner and I wanted to have Shabbat dinner. 
Ryan wanted to be able to be with the boys for candle lighting and a little bit of dinner. She didn't want any of it. And so there's this back and forth of my generosity and then being shut out and all that stuff. And just, it was not fun. It was not fun. And you're all. a self-aware person who's involved in process. Oh, and, and I saw it happening like as it was unfolding too. Like I, I was like, this is it, ugly. Right? I was like, you when look really ugly right low. now. Yeah, I admit it. I'll, I'll look, I'll concede that to you. I will. I'll concede that to you. And yet I still uh, find it inexcusable. I really do. I find it absolutely inexcusable. I, I don't know. If in, I mean, inexcusable is fighting reality. It happened and it happened. But sure. it's what can we do better about it? Hmm. I know for me, when I started having children, I, I stopped sleeping. I never slept again. And I, I thought I was a superhuman. I like would get like three, four hours of sleep. I'm a morning person. I would jump out of bed. I would take care of things. And then post-divorce a few years ago, I started really delving into my sleep and how to get better sleep and learning about the effects of lack of sleep. And I realized, I think I got divorced because I was sleep deprived. <laughs> it's like this really crazy awareness of, oh my gosh. Snore? Because I snore. No, no, it's entirely possible I, I got divorced I because I snore. For 10 years, I'm not able to be effective, to really be self-aware, to really have control over my reactions. It's really, really hard. And so, of course, I didn't get divorced because I was sleep deprived, but it was just this funny thought of, oh my gosh, what if I really, what if the problem was really I didn't get enough sleep? And I think there's something to that when we're not sleeping or any other things that make us more vulnerable it's much harder to be our best selves, to use all the tools that we've learned and you know, um, gathered in those moments when we feel attacked, when we feel weak, when we feel vulnerable and unsafe, then you know, our, our boxing gloves come on. So this whole environment of sleeplessness, of being busy and distracted, about being protective of other things is the Egypt, right? That's the general constricting environment <laughs> that we live on. Way to make it Jewish. Yeah, well, hey, you know, we've, we've, fall, <laughs> we've, we've been distracted. Pyramid. The of... <laughs> Who's the Pharaoh? I would say that that's our... Our, sh our shadow or those part of ourselves that are obstinate or deflective or lack the ability to take responsibility. I mean, you can make this all parts work. Who's the Moses? Who's the hero? Which part well, of that's yourself my point. is the this hero, is, the savior? Which part of yourself is, is the slave, is the subjugated part? Excuse me. This is all a spiritual exercise that I use in my spiritual coaching practice, which, by the way, I do friends. So if you're interested, come check me out. But besides that, Right. No, it is a great exercise in that way. What's the general environment look like? Right. How does it feel? Who is the one inflicting the pain, the Pharaoh, the taskmaster who can be the liberator? Absolutely. What does the promised land look like? You know, I'm actually going to be at a at a Pesach Seder with some pretty uh, hippie Colorado people who will, who will who will totally go into this. So I think that that's a, a cool exercise of looking at the players of the story, the Passover story as your internal parts. So which part of you is, is the Pharaoh, the taskmaster, which part of you is the hero, which part of you is the slave. I think that's a cool way of looking at things. What does your internal Moses say? Right, that sort of thing. I mean, the Passover story is just kind of laden with all these amazing images. Can I talk to your graphic designer? Maybe they'll design something for me. I'll pay them. 
I am my graphic designer. <laughs> You're the one who puts together your Instagram stuff? Some of them. I thought you shopped that out. Some of it. Some of it I do. Well, I'd be very curious to know what this would look like. Just in symbols alone. Speaking of which, have you ever seen um, David Moss's work? David oh. Moss is this amazing uh, uh, Jewish artist uh, who uses symbols to tell the story. Uh, and so he assigns colors uh, to various aspects of the story. And uh, as the narration unfolds, he gives this beautiful symbolic depiction of what's going on. And it's a wonderful way to kind of study the text and then also to think about it from an image-based perspective Visualize. as opposed to, yeah, it's really That's good That's very stuff. cool. Yeah, and he's got an amazing Haggadah out as well, the David Moss Haggadah, which is the entire story. Um, he's, he's also, I mean, I think he, I think he mimicked, uh, he copied a lot of the artwork from just beautiful places. And, and that's what the Haggadah is. It's just gorgeous um, pieces of artwork. Unbelievable. That's very cool. Yeah. As a side Haggadah. note, in case anyone's looking for a Haggadah. So what are your Passover plans with, the, with your traditions? Well, as of late, it's been that visioning exercise. And that's been a good way to kind of walk away from old relationships to think about things that have been hangups in my life. Um, you know, things that have caused me harm and have been on my mind or weighing on my soul as a way of letting them go. That's what I also love about Passover is that it feels like, and I think there's something to this that I think Passover and Rosh Hashanah come about like six years, six months apart. And so like, there's this, you know, every six months you're doing a cleansing ritual, whether it's Tash Lechan Rosh Hashanah or Bidi Khan Bior Chametz, searching for and burning the Chametz. Um, you know, there's something about letting go of those things, right? Returning to a state of humility um, and humbleness um, that, uh, that is helpful for me. Um, yeah. Are you getting ready for Seder? I am not going to be here. I'm going to Colorado. My brother just oh, had a baby, yeah. his first one. So I'm going to go and yield my expertise as a mom who has raised three children incredibly successfully. So <laughs> what do you I'll think Sandra will be him. like? Do you know what my brother did? What? Well, um, it will be small. He, he, he held a nine-month prank where just on me, he pretended that I was the only one that he told the gender to. He told me it was a boy. And all he wanted was to see how long he can carry this prank so that when I come visit, I would change the baby's diaper and freak out because I thought it was a boy. <laughs> he, this is nine months long, nine months in the making. And he is in labor. And I'm telling my parents, like, what are you going to do? Are you going to go to the bris? They're like, bris, it's a girl. I'm like, it's not a girl, it's a boy. And we are arguing this out. And even after the baby was born, he, is, he told me it's a boy. <laughs> And I'm <laughs> arguing with my family. I'm like, I know. And so he kept it going. Yeah. And he got my kids involved. Everybody was in on the oh prank. My. Yeah. So that's the brother I'm going to help. Wow. <laughs> For a minute, I felt Menachem. And I was like, that's moving really fast since last time we spoke. That's Not amazing. him. There's, there's one other brother. The young Another one brother. Beneath him. Shalom. And his name is Shalom. His Shalom, which is the greatest name for him. He, he says hello and goodbye a lot. <laughs> Does he just say shalom, shalom? 
he's very he's just very kind and peaceful except to me he's really he likes to prank <laughs> he's very funny over a nine he's... month period that's <laughs> remarkable i gotta give him that that's impressive he really went in for the long haul there it was very impressive and then every time i'd call him he just kept up laughing he just thinks it's the funniest thing and he was so frustrated that i i because i was called him and said shell you have to tell me the truth i need to change my flights if it's a boy <laughs> you know there's going to be a circumcision and he finally conceded fine it's a girl <laughs> but it took a while to get us there so I, i'm gonna go there and he's gonna have some of his friends and at the seder so nothing too intense because there's a new mama there and their little baby it'll be really nice and you'll consider what is your pharaoh what is it that you're leaving behind? i'll bring it up in conversation there's some pretty self-reflective they're a self-reflective bunch so i think that they would appreciate a conversation like this maybe it'll turn into group therapy hopefully that's always my plan when i travel <laughs> get your credit card machine out where and phone. when could i start a group therapy process spontaneously i'm in need of a Preferably drum circle immediately now yeah oh i they, we could probably get a drum circle going with that crew so that, those are my crew. plans pretty low-key that sounds lovely yeah it was nice I'm taking the boys yeah. back to Jersey to see my family. So that'll be nice. You're going, going East Coast. That was like such a huge relief. It's crazy, like how I felt it the other day. My kid, like, they've been super excited to go, right? Going on a plane, they like going to see cousins, everything like that. Holidays, it's a it's a really good thing. Um, but uh, I, so funny that like they were on the phone with my mother who fell a couple weeks back and she had shoulder surgery. So we've been keeping in touch with her and everything like that on a, just a heightened level uh, on a much more regular pace. And, um, you know, so like the boys were really excited and immediately the phone conversation started off with, Oh, we're so excited to see you guys. We're going to be there in less than a week. And my mother's saying exactly the same thing. And it was just remarkable how like this weight was like, literally I felt it lifted. Like I had just, okay. I bought the tickets for Passover this year, right? And we're going and we're going to see family and do Passover box checked experience set in stone, right? Like I get credit for it. It feels good. Like I, I did the right thing. Um, I, I wasn't expecting that at all. I really wasn't. Um, the weight just, of worry that you had done the wrong thing? Well, I mean, I, I think what I learned from the experience is that I carry around a lot of Jewish guilt. I think for the average normal Jew, and then additionally, because of the rabbi thing, I carry around a lot of Jewish guilt. And I think it's, you know, built up in the fact that, like, I feel like the primary Jewish educator of the family, I've been empowered that way, right, whether I like it or not, right, it's just kind of the way it is. And um I, I want to make sure that my kids get the vibrant Jewish upbringing that I got. And it's comparatively just in terms of experiences, the amount of it is not right. I'm sure the quality of it is. And I think that matters. I do think the amount matters as well. But we've taken care of Jewish summer camp. Like that's a good thing. And frankly, if you look at the research, right, it, it says that like Jewish summer camp is pretty much the number one, solidifier of Jewish identity. You, you couple that with things like youth group and bar mitzvah and other things, Hebrew high school and all that stuff leading up to college, you set yourself up on a, you know, really successful trajectory. 
But I mean, like just particularly in divorce, the holidays are difficult because it feels like there's just this additional pressure to get it done. Right. Um, and feeling alone and doing that right for any number of reasons, want of being alone, but also because like maybe the ex doesn't help in general. Right. Uh, and I'm not saying that's true in my case, that could be true in other people's cases, but like some of the time I just want to be alone. But nonetheless, there's pressure in that way. And I know I'm the primary driver for driving force on the boys bar mitzvahs, right? And like, that's a lot to do. And I think with Passover, not only has it been that like the pandemic stopped a lot of going to seders for people, I haven't seen my family for Passover in the last two years, which has been painful. I would have loved to have done that, particularly going through these early years of divorce. Um, the last time I saw them for Passover was when I was in the early stages of divorce and that was particularly painful. Um, you know, so like being able to go there and for the boys to be excited about it and to have the Passover experience and to know that I accomplished that by buying a plane ticket, right, just made me breathe easier in that moment. And I didn't realize just how much, um, pressure I put on myself to give them good Jewish experiences that are going to be identity defining in certain ways, um, you know, and how much of it I have to do alone, how much I hate doing it alone. And that I may very well just need to reach out to tomorrow and bite the bullet in that way and say, we need to do more of this together because I can't deal with the pressure of it alone. Um, you know, it, it felt good. It almost brought me to tears. Right. Um, and I came to realize that just I, I put a lot of pressure on myself to get that stuff done right. Yeah, I can understand that. It's it's you, if you become a one man show in divorce. And so what if your priorities are to create this vibrant Jewish experience, you're now in charge of, especially with Passover, cleaning the house, preparing, getting the Seder ready in doing all of the, the preparation that's required. And on top of that, making sure that the energy is right, that the spiritual activity, all the activities and all the stuff that you need to create that, that, that vibe. And that's a lot. I know for me, it was a lot. Um, I was usually the energy in the pair and the, you know, my ex took care of, he would do a lot of the shopping and things like that. And it, there was partnership there and in the divorce, it became too much for me. And it, it's sad to let some of those things go because that's where the traditions are made. The memories are made of the way something feels, right? Going back to what we talked about, that memory is how did it feel? How did it feel to have fun at that night or to come together and create these traditions? And, and so that's, that is a hard process. I think I also like in my mind, go to like this Norman Rockwell picture type of thing of like the whole family around the Passover Seder table, right? And it's just not that. Well, I'm glad that the burden was lifted and you felt like you made the, the good choice. So sounds like it will be great and your kids are excited. Yes, yes, I made the right choice and that felt very good to do. And I pat myself on the back for that. Good um, job, Noam. Thank you. We have a chant in my house that we sing on Friday nights. We go around the table and everybody says- Is it Shalom Aleichem? No, after that, it's uh, everyone says the best part of the week, their worst part of the week, and their most proud part of the week. And then we sing 
this random song that I made up randomly, but it's <laughs> let's hear it. Good job, it. Noam. Do it again. Do it at a party. <laughs> Make a lot of friends. <laughs> <laughs> Anytime I say good job, someone that's the chant comes up. And everybody says it together in unison and it's good job, Noam. Good do play. it again. Do it again. Do it at a party. Make a lot of friends. <laughs> You're welcome to use it. <laughs> I'll think about it. I'll think about it for sure. Yeah. Well, love- even without the chant, it's a nice tradition of, of of going around and reflecting on your week and sharing those moments with everyone. Oh my lord. <laughs> It's my gift to everybody. Okay. okay. My chant. Well, friends, if you want to share with us uh, your Egypt, your Pharaoh, your promised land, and your Moses, uh, go right ahead. Uh, send it to us at the Jewish Divorce Project at gmail.com or look us up on the web and reach out to us through the website at the Jewish Divorce Project.com. Have a wonderful Passover. Enjoy and your hope. Look for you your. Oh, and our. I, <laughs> Everybody knows our handles at this point. Well, Where are we on Instagram, Facebook? <laughs> the Jewish, just Google the Jewish Divorce Project. <laughs> and on Facebook and Instagram, yeah, what she said. <laughs> and rate us, give us good ratings, friends. We love our followers. Have a, we really do love you all very much. You, you're wonderful people. We don't really know who you are, so we would love to know more. And more importantly, um, if you have suggestions for interviews, what would you like us yeah. to talk about? Who would you like us to interview? Send those suggestions our way. We're always looking for interesting topics or guests. We're going to have some share. great guests and I think interesting topics coming up. Oh, so we've got some things coming up. Let's let's tease them out. Comedian, a well-respected, yeah, we're going to have a comedian. We're going to have a well-respected rabbi and uh, we're going to, we're going to. And we're going to talk about, you actually brought it up, that struggle of um, getting through those, seminal Jewish moments like the bar bat mitzvah or yeah. things like that. When you're divorced, we're going to have somebody on uh, who's, who's yeah. uh, creating yes. some work Ex- behind that. Experience in that, yes. Um, from a very personal and now also professional uh, lens. So that'll be really wonderful. Excellent. So stay tuned. Yes, and Chag Kasher V'Sameach, friends. Have a wonderful Passover. May you uh, find meaning and liberation in all that you do. Amen. Peace out. Mm-hmm.